1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. government's top infectious disease expert, he did say there's a good chance a vaccine might be deployable by November or December. So that is among our headlines when it comes to COVID-19 on this Wednesday. Uh, Washington State, as you know, has been at the center of the virus uh, in the U.S. from day one, specifically at the Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, that hospital. It is part of one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. Let's talk about the virus and where we are. Dr. Joanne Roberts is chief quality. Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. She joins us uh, on the phone from Renton, Washington. Dr. Roberts, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. There are a few headlines out there uh, today. Certainly in some places like Brazil, we see cases uh, soaring. Uh, tell us about what you think is the most important uh, in in, where, in terms of where we are uh, with the pandemic.
2: Well, thanks so much, Carol. Uh, as far as where I think we are with the spread of the pandemic, um, and I think by and large, most of our country has done really well uh, in uh, physical distancing and masking and other other areas. I think we all know the challenges of bringing our country together around this. Um, I think we in healthcare are looking to early to mid-June to see what the effects are of the opening up that we really saw this Memorial Day because... Everything that we do today will show up two or three weeks later in our hospitals when people get sick and start coming in. And we're watching that closely day by day.
1: And so, uh, Dr. Roberts, as as Carol said at the top, you know, you guys were the first to see cases here in the United States. What have you learned about treatment? What have you learned about this disease that, that may be useful to those of us who, uh, aren't, who weren't on the front end as much?
2: Yeah, I think uh, what we're seeing uh, in the mass media is uh, borne out uh, with us locally as well. Uh, we just this morning uh, had a discussion of the use of remdesivir. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, that's being um, released uh, more and more through Gilead. And um, we believe we have enough doses on hand to treat all of our patients that we currently have. It's not a magic bullet. It doesn't preclude any of the things that we all need to do around masking and social distancing. But it does seem to at least uh, lower the length of stay in our hospitals. And we are expecting more reports out soon. Hopefully that remdesivir will actually improve the mortality rates uh, and decrease the number of deaths. But it's just one piece of a bigger story that continues to evolve week by week.
1: And how soon will we really know the the efficacy of remdesivir? Is it weeks? Is it months? Like, what's the timeline there?
2: I think, like I said, I think every week we see more science being released, um, Mm -hmm. more studies being completed, I think, within the next two to three weeks. We'll see more of the story around remdesivir, as well as other agents that are in the pipeline.
0: Is a second wave a given?
3: Yes
2: it is. I think there's, we believe there's no doubt that a second wave will come. We don't know when it will come. We don't know how big it will be. Um, But we we are certainly putting together plans inside of Providence to try to detect the second wave uh, early and to prepare for it. As you know, in the 1918 flu pandemic, it was the second wave that was the big killer five times as many people died in the second wave as in the first wave. And so we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, we're, we're in a breathing space where we can all get ready for the next wave.
0: So what's the science behind that? That a second wave is more deadly and would that necessarily be the case with this virus? It would, I, we don't know.
2: We are we're in a position of not knowing what the second wave will look like. Um, I wouldn't say why, I don't think any of us expect the second wave will be worse. But we have to prepare as if it could be
1: worse. And so what do you do to prepare? As, a, as someone at a, a hospital and, and thinking about society, and I know you guys have been really good about advising the local authorities there, and, and I know that you and your colleagues have been advising a lot of folks across the country, what are you telling them from a public policy perspective to, to do to mute the effect of the second wave?
2: Well I think I think we've all learned a lot from the first wave, so we're not starting uh, with no knowledge now we're starting with a lot of knowledge yeah. on how we do work together uh, and I think uh, our local states and even national uh, governments along with healthcare systems have really come together and are cooperating in extremely uh, positive ways uh, I think the the next wave we won't see this we co- full close down of society and closing down all other care like we did during the first wave, I think it will be a much more nuanced response.
0: Well, that's interesting, because I do wonder, you know, when we, if we, if and when, or uh, it sounds like when we start to see an uptick in cases, I do wonder if the one thing we've learned is that kind of lockdown, or at least putting, you know, protecting those more vulnerable populations very quickly will make a difference.
2: Yes, I think so. And, and remember, the reason we locked down much of the healthcare care system in the first wave was because we didn't have enough protective equipment right. uh, to, for our, our caregivers. We're doing much better. The whole country is doing much better with that. So I think that won't be a barrier the next time quite so badly.
1: Well, let's continue our conversation with Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Quality Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health. Joining us on the phone from Washington State. So Dr. Roberts, we talked a little bit about remdesivir. That's obviously a, a therapeutic. We hear about antibody tests. We hear about vaccines. What's the thing we need to know at this point? What's the most important thing for our listening audience to understand about the medical side of this and especially in light of sort of getting us back to some semblance of normal?
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question, Jason. Um, I think our next big challenge is continuing to make sure we have enough testing capacity. Uh, still testing for evidence of, an, of acute infection, uh, and as one of your other sources that you just featured said, um, looking to have enough tests to show that our communities have things under relative control when we're tests when our tests show fewer than. Five percent of people testing positive the more tests we have we expect to see more more negative results which will be a good thing Uh, we we we're still working with partial knowledge on just how sick our communities are so that's step number one step number go ahead no 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 please finish please finish Step two, I think, is the therapies that are emerging uh, and that they will continue to emerge uh, through the summer. And I think step three then uh, is uh, vaccines that Dr. Fauci mentioned today. And we would all hope for vaccines to be available by the end of this year. I think we don't expect that, but, uh, you know, hope is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I'll take hope, that's for sure. Hey, what's interesting, though, um, Dr. Roberts, is we talk so much about testing. Everybody does. uh, Testing, tracing, right? Uh, This is key to it. I'm a little confused. Like, what do you tell society? Should Jason and I be tested? Should everybody be tested so that we have a really clear picture about who's had it, who hasn't had it? Because I know, I think there's some concerns that as you do more testing, right, you do hope that there's more negatives but that there's maybe also indications that more people have had it. So uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of what we as society, what's our responsibility in improving the testing that needs to be done to get a better control of uh, this pandemic. Thanks for asking.
2: That's a great question, Carol. And, and maybe if I could divide this into three ways of testing. So we're, we have three strategies of testing going forward. Number one, is individuals being acutely infected. And that's what we've been doing so far, and we're still doing that. So I have a fever, I go down to the testing center and I get tested. So if I have symptoms, I get tested. That's where we are today. As tests become more common, we'll take a more public health view. And so public health departments will start testing people without symptoms, but who might be at some risk uh, either by where they live, some exposure, to try to get a better idea of what the community infection rate Mm. is. The second stage is looking at the community. And then the third stage is that antibody stage, and that's looking at people who have had exposure and have mounted some sort of an immune reaction to COVID. And I think we're still a ways away from the second and third, although I think the second stage is where we're going to be moving in the next month or two.
0: And is that just a case of having enough tests, or, or is it just yes. not right time yet? It is having enough
2: tests. It okay. is, as tests become more available, we can take a more public health viewpoint. The problem with the antibody test, as we've all heard, is that we have a lot of different tests out there checking for a lot of different kinds of antibodies, and right. we haven't figured out which are the antibodies that are correlated with immunity, which is really right. what we all want to know, right? Who's Am I immune after I've had an episode
1: of COVID? Yeah, it's interesting. That's such a great point and a great point to end on, uh, Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Quality Officer of Providence St. Joseph Health. Joining us on the phone from Washington State, that last point is so critical. I've been mean, had a conversation with my sons today about this idea of like, oh, well, so-and-so has the antibodies. And one of them was like, all right. So what does that mean? Are we sure that that's that means immunity? And the answer that I said was I, I don't know. <laughs> like, and well, and that's and and by the way, that's exactly what Dr. Roberts just said. Is we don't know what it means. Didn't one of our reporters do a whole story about yes.
0: right? That's what she did. She well, did. I mean, it was what, right, It was antibody, wasn't it?
1: It was antibody. Yeah. What she found was that you could you got different results. results. Um, I think what Dr. Roberts was also problematic. But what Dr. Roberts was saying is even if you find out you have the antibodies, you're not even sure you're immune. Immune. So so that's a that's a really big leap that I think we're all taking in a very optimistic way. But we don't know. Um, And that's why the vaccine ultimately is going to be the thing. In many ways.
0: That was a great discussion. Really Really good. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Josh Green writes that courting black voters was never going to be an easy task for President Trump, but exit polls did show that the president carried only eight percent of them back in the 2016 presidential election. Even so, the Trump campaign not giving up when it comes to African-American voters. So let's get into it with Josh Green. He is national correspondent at Bloomberg Week. He's on the phone in Washington, D.C. Also with us is Joel Weber, uh, Bloomberg Business Week editor, on the phone in Brooklyn, New York. I love stories like this, Joel, because it does remind us, yeah, we got an election, folks, just around the corner.
4: It's, is- it's, it's, Pretty remarkable because all we ever talk about is COVID, but but we really do. And, you know, one of the interesting developments in the weeks leading up to really the outbreak of the pandemic was that President Trump's reelection campaign made clear with great fanfare that they were going to go after black voters, which is not something that any political expert would expect because Trump had lost them overwhelmingly in 2016 and is probably going to do so again in 2020. Uh, but what was interesting was they thought they had a pretty compelling pitch, and it was based around the fact that as recently as February, black unemployment had been at historically low levels. Um, you know that, that seemed like the basis for, for Trump to make an appeal to black voters. And uh, the news that I break in this piece is that Trump had planned to open up black voices for Trump community centers and malls and retail outlets and battleground states uh, but now, because of the pandemic, that plan has been shelved.
1: And so, Josh, you know, it's interesting that this story comes out, you know, just days after what I think we can all agree was a pretty massive gaffe by, by Joe Biden um, on Charlemagne the God's uh, show last week, where it's clear that he just takes that uh, population for granted and that electorate for granted synthesized that for us. Yeah, I mean, this, this is interesting. You know, on the one hand, Biden is very popular with black
4: voters. On the other hand, a complaint among many black voters in one that the Trump campaign has pushed and stoked and exacerbated is the contention that Democratic politicians take the black vote for granted. And that black voters ought to therefore be more open to appeals from Republicans, and of course, Biden's Biden's gaffe where he said, you know, if, if you're black and you're thinking about voting for Trump, you ain't really black, or whatever he said, caused this whole kind of conflagration in the news cycle, and was uh, you know you, you saw President Trump um, you know, pushing on that, exacerbating that, and that's something that Democratic pollsters worry about because Trump doesn't have to win the black vote. In November, in order to get reelected, if he can move the margins, you know, four or five, six percent among black voters, that could be very costly in a tipping point state like a Wisconsin or a Michigan or yeah. a Pennsylvania. So that's something that Biden's going to have to worry about. And that's why the campaign, the Trump campaign, decided to target these voters.
0: All right. We do want to bring Joel, Wedder, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, into our conversation. He's on the phone in Brooklyn, New York. Joel, we went to you initially. I know we had some technical problems. We've got you now. I had kicked it off, uh, and Josh jumped in on it's the okay. conversation. It's okay. Josh is the main
5: event. It's totally <laughs> – <But laughs> it yeah, Josh is the main event. It's all good. I it know is... where I stand. No, no. Uh, you're up there. Yeah, but,
0: I... but it's a great reminder that you know we do have this election year going on, so I love this coverage.
5: Uh, it's the you know the it was the story of the year and it suddenly became like the second or maybe the third uh, biggest story of the year but yeah I mean I you know I think what Josh pointed out here was something that was really important which was going into uh, what was gonna be you know a re-election campaign like a, a traditional one he, Trump had really identified that he had a potential way of targeting a black vote in a way that was really gonna resonate with that community which was all about unemployment but Josh the thing that I think really jumps out is like you know the number has popped to 17 percent I think you say in the story it could even go higher than that how much of that could just totally walk away from him if the unemployment numbers for the black community just keep going higher
4: well it's you know in, in, in talking to economists the actual number is almost certainly much higher because black unemployment is usually higher than, than other unemployment it could go as high as 25 or even 30 percent so um, Certainly, you wouldn't expect that to cause a rush of black voters to support Trump, and it removes really the main basis of his appeal to black voters. But what's interesting, if you talk to Trump strategists and also um, uh, Democratic pollsters who specialize in reaching African-Americans, which I did for this piece, Trump is really only targeting a fairly narrow segment of uh, male African-American voters who tend to be more positive toward him, in a specific subset that doesn't really pay attention to the news. They don't read newspapers, they don't watch broadcast news. Um, they're what's known as low-information voters, and they generally think of Trump as a pretty cool guy, a celebrity. They're open to an appeal. And in these voters, by and large, don't feel particularly warmly toward the Democratic Party. One worry the Democrats have, ironically enough, is that economy is this bad, it's so bad, we're in a recession, and Trump is the only candidate talking about jobs, that that might in fact be appealing to young African American men who have found themselves out of a job as a result of the pandemic. So the big message among uh, Democratic strategists I talk to who specialize in reaching black voters is that Democrats can't take this group for granted, because as crazy as it may seem to some people that blacks would support Trump in light of all that has happened with the coronavirus pandemic and the the recession and so on, um, he only needs to reach a few of them to theoretically tip some of these battleground states that could wind up being decisive.
0: What about for Biden? I mean, this is an important part of, right, the voters that he hopes to capture.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. you know, the reason Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 in a nutshell is because she didn't energize black voters to the same extent that Barack Obama had done in 2012. And as we all know, uh, if black voters are really the, the, the demographic group that drove Biden to win the Democratic nomination. Um, but the problem is you need them to come out in the fall, too. And so one of the things the Biden campaign is talking about is, you know, how do we incentivize those voters to come out? Do we pick someone like an African American woman to join them on the ticket, like a Kamala Harris or a Stacey Abram? Um, you know, are there, are there different things we can do to kind of get them excited, uh, about coming out in November? And remember, you know, it's, it's entirely possible that it could be difficult to vote. It's already more difficult for blacks to vote than it is for other groups. But if we're in the middle of a pandemic or if there's a backlash or, uh, as we saw in recent primary elections, if states simply close um, voting outlets in predominantly black areas, it could be harder to attract those voters, which makes it even more important that Biden find a way to reach and energize these voters and get them to come out in November. But that's something very much on the minds of Biden's campaign strategist right now.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. It's a terrific story. Uh, very insightful, as always. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us from D.C., Joel Weber. He's, of course, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He joined us from Brooklyn, Carol.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, doing more with less electricity is one of the best ways to decarbonize the economy. But the future for energy efficiency, well, it's hit a pandemic size speed. It's our Bloomberg Green segment today and let's talk about that speed bump, what we're talking about. Joining us is uh, Emily Chasen. She's sustainability editor at Bloomberg News. She joins us uh, once again on the phone in New York City. Emily, good to have you here again. So talk to us about what's going on and how the virus is impacting electricity.
3: Yeah, thanks, Jason and Carol. Yeah, it's a really interesting time for energy efficiency. So before this pandemic hit, it was going to be like the biggest boomier energy efficiency had ever seen. Everybody wanted to spend on the climate. You can actually like make back your money in like one or two years if you do things like change out light bulbs or change out heat compressors and just make your buildings more green and just use less energy. It saves you money very quickly. Um, So people were going to spend a lot. Then the pandemic hit and um, electric. Usage has gone way down, so people are not, like, there's not as much electricity to save from energy efficiency. They're not spending as much. And then also, um, they just put out these job numbers in clean energy, and the biggest hit sector in clean energy um, seems to be energy efficiency, that people are just not quite um, doing this the way they had planned.
1: Yeah. So, how much of this feels like I mean, girls at a pandemic-sized speed bump. I mean, those were how much Emily's of, words. They were just great ones. <laughs> and how much That's of it is how much of it is a speed bump, and and how how much of it is temporary? I guess how much of it is in in less uh, in in less flowery terms just a blip.
3: So buildings are about forty percent of. Power usage in some places. So like in New York City, buildings are a huge amount of power usage. And the big way to get New York State to its energy goals is to change out all the commercial usage in buildings, right? And all the commercial stuff. So um, that's really what they need to do to get those goals. And those goals are still out there for 2025, 2030. Um, so there's still a lot of pressure to get these done quickly because the goals are so big. Um, so I think companies still might do them Um, A lot of people are going to go in and install, like, touchless faucets and, like, look at their HVAC systems just for the pandemic and bringing people back to work. So um, they'll probably look from an energy efficiency perspective as well.
0: So what do we need to kind of get everybody back on track? Because it it is a new environment, right? And we need to kind of rethink things a little bit.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because there's some stocks that have, you know, there's lots of different companies in this space. Like, we looked at Cree Inc. or FLIR Systems this week, and, you know, what. The way that energy efficiency has happened before is through these energy audits. Companies like FLIR have done that, where they send an auditor and they say, oh, here's all the places you're losing money that you don't need to be, um, but now you can change that um, and make some money and save some money. Um, so, But that doesn't really work in a social distancing era. Um, in that yeah, that's way. true. So people aren't going to have like those energy auditors come into your home or your building and really like investigate everything. So um, that's a big speed bump, and that would probably have to be fixed or find some new ways to do it. You could put smart meters in in homes. Um, You could do, you know, the light bulb changes. There's some quick hits like that. So we saw that Cree Inc. was um, upgraded by J.P. Morgan this week because um, it it does stuff like that that people think this will just be a speed bump for them, and they'll, they'll really... The big benefit,
0: But I do think about buildings and how they're going to be, you know, re-equipped uh, in a post-COVID-19 environment and whether you have more electricity that's going to be needed because you're going to need things to be remotely opened, whether it's mm. elevators, whether it's, you know, entries, whether it's, you know, bathroom door. Like, I, I just don't know. And I do wonder if there will be more pressure because ultimately we will see increased energy usage and people need to kind of think about that. I don't know if that plays into any of your thinking or what you're hearing.
3: Yeah, there's a big push to um, just think about this in the stimulus plan and to have incentives around it so that companies aren't wasting carbon, I guess, as they come back to work. Um, So the Rocky Mountain Institute this month, they put out a stimulus plan idea and they said you could launch a national building retrofit program and scale up green mortgages and offer incentives for electrifying buildings and disconnecting gas. And that's actually a good way to put people back to work, too, because um, we already had like sort of a shortage of. Workers available for energy efficiency before this happened.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting uh, twist on on something we've been talking a lot about, which is getting back to work and how you re how you think about office buildings. and And candidly, it's not uh, an element uh, that I had thought of. Emily Jason, thank you so much. She wrote this story and uh, gets full credit for that uh, nice line, the pandemic size speed bump. Carol,
0: I lo- oh totally. It I was so well written. I thought I'm just going to borrow it just, just <laughs> for the introduction. It. Just lift I it right out of there. I don't know if in your household, like we went through a whole wave where like all the light bulbs my husband was just going like you know slowly like changing over to the more efficient light bulbs but can Um, i
1: make a confession Yes. Sometimes the light's not great.
0: I know. I, they, I, <laughs> I complain. And I care beat. a lot
1: about how I'm lit, as you know.
0: I need that warm, like, lighting.
1: warm. Like, I need all the help I can get with the shiny head and all I, these different things. I said like, the same thing
0: at home. I'm like, honey,
1: I really don't like this light. He's like, they're more energy efficient. I'm like, yeah, I know, exactly. but
0: I really hate the light.
1: I know, but I need to look pretty. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I'm at home.
1: <laughs> at all times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. They are getting better, though. They're learning yeah. how to do warm, energy-efficient lights. Warm,
1: energy-efficient. All right. Well, all right. Let's do it. Let's. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be in the market for those. I'll pay any price <laughs> to look just a little bit better. Vanity. Oh, vanity. I'm in my car.
4: This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, we're going to count you down to the closing bell. That's brought to you by SEI. Crises and challenges highlight the power of partnership and character. Work for the common good. One community. SEI. Go to seic.com slash banks. Carol?
0: All right. It is time for the close. We're getting uh, closer, just about 11 minutes away. And as Charlie mentioned, uh, equities are pretty much at their best levels of the session. So we've seen certainly a leg up here in the last hour or so. Let's talk about the trade. Kirk Hartman is back with us. He's President and Global Chief Investment Officer at Wells Fargo Asset Management. Roughly $518 billion in assets under management. And keep in mind that Kirk oversees all the asset class teams, equities, fixed income, factor-based, and quantitative. He joins us once again uh, from L.A. So, Kirk, nice to have you here with us. Um, How's life in L.A. right now?
6: Well, it's great. Um, You know, California has done pretty well well. We locked down early and um, things seem to be improving. So, so far, so good.
0: How do you think uh, the economic outlook is doing? I know last time you were on with us, it's a little bit more than a month ago, you talked about how the Fed has created socialist markets. Uh, Many would certainly point to the Fed for keeping things calm in the financial markets and the economy amid the pandemic. Has your thinking at all changed about this?
6: Well, no, I think it's pretty much the same in the sense that the money supply is up 14% year over year, and the money has got to go to work. And um, I think the Fed drew a line in the sand on, um, I think it was April the 8th, when they came in and said that they would support um, credits that needed to survive. You know, the double Bs that have fallen to, um, or triple Bs that have fallen to double Bs, crossover credits, and um, they were buying uh, ETFs, high yield ETFs. So I think the Fed put is alive and well. I don't know if you call that socialism, but um I think that uh you
1: know a lot of support for the market. And so has monetary really has monetary policy really been the the key weapon here because I believe last time you were with us too you know we talked about sort of the balance between monetary and fiscal it feels like fiscal has fizzled a, a little bit at least the debates uh, on Capitol Hill have delayed anything going on that's become very much a political football and yet the the Fed seems to soldier on and we even heard from uh, New York Fed President John Williams earlier today here on Bloomberg, you know, talking about managing the yield curve a little bit. So it feels like this is, is sort of the Fed's game still.
6: Well, I think it's rotated to the Fed's game. I think
1: uh, early on the uh, fiscal
6: measures uh, helped a substantial mm-hmm. amount. I think the, the question to your point about the MMT, the you know, targeting of rates is what can the Fed do next? And yeah. I think that's the uh, that's the big question. And what do you think? What should they do? Well, I think the Fed uh, should, uh, you know, hold service right here and, and see uh, how this plays out. Um, look, I have a smile on my face. The markets are uh, doing uh, very well today. Uh, you've got the big stimulus package in um, Europe. But um, I think you have to see how the, uh, you know, the trade tensions play out. Um, I am concerned about ratcheting up tensions with China and um I think that you know the uh, the markets uh, you know you can argue are very
1: fully valued here and where do we go from here? How do you think is- about Hong Kong? I just want to follow that on on that for real briefly Kirk because you know we talk about it from a fairly almost parochial perspective, you know, we spend so much time talking to folks on Wall Street, we know about sort of the the presence that big global financial firms have in Hong Kong, we know it's a gateway to Asia, we understand the the political value there. But I wonder from, from the perspective of someone who has to look after the markets globally, and as Carol pointed out at the beginning, across so many asset classes, and how do you factor the Hong Kong tension specifically into your investment case?
6: Well, I worry about supply chains and I worry about pricing. We've all benefited from uh, cheap goods coming out of China, and that has kept inflation low and arguably, uh, you know, led Americans to have a much better life with cheaper products. You wonder, with all the barriers coming up, whether you really are going to get the optimal economy that we all want, not only uh, domestically and internationally with increased tensions with China. And, um, you know, don't forget that our economies are very, very linked. And China also owns a trillion dollars of our treasury. So, um, you know, there are 25, 30 years of working together for the global good. And um, if we're going to have new rules, there's obviously an uncertainty quotient there.
0: Well. There is definitely, and there's certainly heightened tensions not only between the U.S. and China, but it looks like between China and India. I mean, there's a lot of things that it feels like uh, are brewing at this point. I mean, what kind of visibility, Kirk, do you feel like you have on the remainder of the year?
6: Well, I think this uh, year is uh, playing out pretty much as I thought it would in the sense that I thought we'd be back to these levels at the end of the year. So, Clearly, the market is, um, you know, anticipating that uh, uh, the growth of the virus will has peaked or will peak and that the uh, global economy will recover. And, and, you know, that may well be the case. But um, I think it's hard here to uh, go uh, much further than we've gone uh, short of seeing more data. And um, I think the big question here is uh, the second wave with a big question mark. Is there going to be a second wave
1: in the fall and how bad is it going to be? But
6: so far, so good.
1: And your clients seem pretty optimistic given all the green they're seeing on their screens?
6: Well, I've been, um, you know, uh, honestly amazed at our clients and they stuck with their asset allocations, meaning I think most people had the view that they were not going to change uh, most of what they had. And um, most people didn't. And I think that they've benefited from that. So uh, I give them credit. I think the things you got to ask now are what is the future of interest rates? What's the future of fixed income? You have a ten year treasury at uh sixty basis points, massive amount of debt. And um you clearly are gonna have a lot of global dislocation. So, um things are good, but there are obviously some worries on the horizon.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. Uh, as always, Kirk Hartman, he is the President Global Chief Investment Officer for Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.